But uh, and there are new findings coming out about it all the time. But the big picture part of the story is that the things we're talking about, being engaged with others, having meaningful work, following healthy practices, uh, make a very big difference in, in overall life outcomes and longevity. And you know, on the topic of longevity, you know, a lot of people think, well, I want to live as long as possible. Well, sure, that's a good goal. But maybe a better goal is that for whatever length of time you have, to make sure that you can maximize the amount of time you're healthy and engaged with the world. If I could live an extra 20 years, but I spend those last 20 years in a coma or in a catatonic state, that doesn't appeal to me. We have less control over longevity. Uh, I mean, some obvious things, don't smoke, uh, you know, don't you know, try to try to keep your weight down, these kinds of, you know, you know, reduce risks. But apart from the obvious things uh, for longevity, the kinds of things you and I are talking about, being conscientious, being curious, um, making associations with others, learning new things, those can keep your brain healthier for a longer portion of the time that you're alive. So your lifespan might be you know, lifespan is the chronology. You, you were born, you die, you have a certain number of days. We can divide that into health span and disease span. Usually, in the course of a normal life, you're rolling along more or less healthy with some ups and downs. You get sick at the end, you die from what you got sick of. That last part where you're sick is the disease span. The health span is the rest of it. And the kinds of things you and I are talking about can push that health span out within the lifespan. Hi, I'm Pete McCall, and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. That voice you heard is a guest for this episode, Dr. Daniel Levitin. Now, Dr. Levitin is the author of a book called Successful Aging. And before I get into the full introduction for Dr. Levitin, I want to say, Thank you. And I mean this sincerely. Thank you for taking the time to listen. It's, I think I've said this a number of times, but I mean it. I mean, my goal, my purpose for doing this podcast is I'm a geek, right? I'm an exercise science geek. I'm, yes, I was a personal trainer. Yes, I'm a, you know, I'm a recovering meathead. I go to meetings on Monday. If you're, if you're a big weightlifter, you kind of get that joke because Monday is International Bench Press Day. But I'm recovering meathead, and, and what I've done in my career, what I do in my career, is I, I read the research and I help create education programs for personal trainers to learn how to design exercise programs. I teach personal trainers the science of exercise for designing designing workouts for their clients. That's what I do. That's what I love doing. I evolved from personal trainer, and that's what I do now. I work with the certification organizations. I work with equipment companies, and I started this podcast because I have the opportunity to have very interesting conversations with other people in the fitness space, with other educators, with equipment inventors, with people who are creating the products and and developing the programs that make us all sweat. And as I've been doing this podcast, I mean, my goal is to share this information with you. When When I go out and I'm speaking at a conference, I have phenomenal conversations with my colleagues we talk about the latest research. Yes, we do. I mean, we're, we're kind of geeky like that, right? But we talk about the latest research. We talk about what we're doing. We're talking about how we're applying this information to help people live healthier lives. 
And a big, and that's what I'm trying to do with the podcast. I'm trying to bring different insights into you, and not different insights into you, but I'm trying to bring different insights to you about how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And that's why for this episode, I'm so excited because Dr. Levitin wrote a book called Successful Aging. The concept of successful aging is aging free from disease, aging with cognitive function. In fact, my upcoming book, Ageless Intensity, is based on how to use exercise to achieve successful aging. And I, I read Dr. Levitin's book, or I read most of, you know, read through Dr. Levitin's book, and it really is. It, it, this is a great. What you're going to hear today is a brief conversation. We only had a little bit of time together, but what he's going to do is lay out some of the key components for how we age successfully, for how we interact with people, for how we engage with people. I mean, we are all. I hate to tell you this. We're not getting any younger. No one's no one's rewinding the clock. But we are all getting a little bit older one day at a time. And understanding this information, Dr. Levitin is a neuroscientist, and he actually has a very he has a very interesting background. He was a musician. And you'll hear him explain it. You don't need me to explain it. But he he really understands how the brain works. Now, if you want to understand more about exercise, if you want to understand how exercise impacts the body. I have a couple resources for you. I wrote my book, Smarter Workouts, based on my experience educating personal trainers. In Smarter Workouts, I teach you, the reader, what I teach personal trainers, which is how to design exercise programs. That's, that's the book I've written. I also have a couple ebooks. I have Functional Core Training, which is an ebook based on the research of Dr. Stu McGill, who's been a guest a number of times on the podcast. In Functional Core Training, I teach you how to design exercise programs from the inside out. So you build a foundation of strength and you layer upon that. I also have an ebook called Exercise Program Design for the Fountain of Youth. That's a long title, but what it does, it's the prequel for my upcoming book, Ageless Intensity. And in Exercise for the Fountain of Youth, I teach you the components of exercise and how they can help slow down or mitigate the effects of the biological aging process. If you want to read a chapter of Smarter Workouts before you buy it, then go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. At PeteMcCallFitness.com, you can sign up for my mailing list, and I will send you a chapter of Smarter Workouts along with one of the 21 workouts you get in the book. If you sign up for my mailing list, I don't spam your email box. I send out one, maybe two emails a month that goes through information that helps you learn how to apply exercise, helps you learn how to use exercise to not only enhance your quality of life, but to slow down the aging process. That's my mission to help you. And that's exactly why we have our guest today, Dr. Daniel Levitin. He is a neuroscientist. He's an author of multiple books. But today, we're going to talk about his latest book, the New York Times bestseller, Successful Aging. So let's get into it with Dr. Daniel Levitin. Today on the All About Fitness podcast, I am speaking. I'm for, for my YouTube audience. I'm holding up the book uh, by Dr. Daniel Levitin, uh, the book called Successful Aging. And listeners, you can't see this, but Dr. Levitin is actually pumping iron at his desk as we speak. How are you doing today, doctor? How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show. Certainly. Now, what what is it? What is your background? Your background is a little bit different than mine. I'm an exercise physiologist, but what's your background? Well, my formal training is, uh, was first in music uh, and then later in cognitive neuroscience, uh, brain science. 
How did how does that evolve? How did that evolve? How did you go from music into neuroscience? Well, I'd always been interested in both, and uh, so I I started out college studying neuroscience and mathematics and then decided I'd rather play music. So I tried that for 15 years and I, I wasn't as good at it as that I wanted to be. And so I went back to school. <laughs> well, and what was your instrument? What was your go-to instrument or genre of music? Guitar and uh, a lot of different styles of music, funk, uh, rock, blues, mostly some jazz. And, and before we get into the book, but the one thing I read, I remember reading this somewhere, maybe I heard it somewhere, but aren't musicians, aren't a lot of musicians actually really good at mathematics or at engineering because music is based in, in numbers, is, is based on, on like mathematical equations sort of? You know, that is a common notion, but it's, it's not true. Okay. I, I think what happens is when we hear about somebody who's good at both, we remember it and we think, oh, isn't that interesting? And then we come up with a bunch of reasons why it might be. But statistically, no. Okay, I just that, that's one of those things. And and real quick, I noticed over your shoulder is that the Beetle? Is that the Abbey Road picture over your over your shoulder in your office? Yeah, it's a signed lithograph of the Abbey Road cover. Oh wow! Okay. Signed by the four Beatles, and then below it is a picture of me interviewing the Dalai Lama for the book we're talking about. Oh wow! Cool. And then on and- my other shoulder is Roseanne Cash and I after a gig we did in New York. Oh, that's cool. That's that's really cool. That's a nice little that's a nice little setup there. Now let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about successful aging. What caused you to write this book? What what? Well, first of all, what is successful aging? And then, kind of, what was your motivation behind writing the book? I, I think successful aging uh, is being able to continue to do things that you take pleasure from, and not have your chronological age interfere with that. Now, yeah, to some degree it does. If you're 100, you probably shouldn't be climbing Everest. But if you got to go out, we got to go some way. Why not go <laughs> doing, doing something you enjoy? <laughs> well, right, right. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, within reason, uh, to be able to, t- to take pleasure from your life, to do the things you enjoy doing, um, a lot of people don't have that ability, uh, either because of bad choices they made or bad genes or bad luck. Um, but... The reason I wrote the book is that we've learned a lot in neuroscience over the last 10 years that hadn't trickled down to the average reader about steps we can take starting at any age, 15 or 20 really, that will put you in a better position to be able to uh, take enjoyment from life by keeping your brain and mind healthy and growing. I think of it as a life hacker and that's and that's when I was reading it. That's exactly what it sounded like. And, and you don't know this. I don't think you've listened to the podcast. But you actually just defined. You you just described my mission for the podcast. My mission is to get people thinking about fitness as having the ability to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And that that just coincides with successful aging. So what are the three strands? You identify three strands, and you write of successful aging. And, and what are those strands? Why should people pay attention to those? I think of the, the way that your life turns out sits, in on, a, sits on a three-legged stool. Uh, one of them is genetics. The genes that you're born with, in most cases, are not uh, perfectly predictive. They're not perfectly predictive of how you'll come out, but uh, they're an influence. They, you can have a predisposition. I mean, for example, uh, I... I have the kind of uh, fast twitch muscle fibers that mean that as a kid, I was a good sprinter. 
uh, and I took, you know, prizes in the 50 and the 100. But I, wow. I've tried doing, uh, I mean, a little kid, elementary school, junior high, and not enough to compete in high school even, <laughs> but it was something. But no, I, still, yeah. I've tried to jog five, 10 miles. That's my body's not made that way. Uh, I can, I can do it, but it's a, you know, I'm born with a different genetic makeup, uh, which favors one over the other. And then what is the second strand? The second strand, you have genetics and then what's the second strand of the stool or the second leg? The second leg is your environment and culture that you were raised in. Uh, certainly if you're in an environment that, uh, a culture, a family that promotes fitness, good diet, exercise, good sleep habits, uh, you're going to fare better uh, as opposed to having like a, a crack addict parent, you know, or, you know, completely disorganized household. Not your fault beyond your control. But the reality is, if you were raised like that, you have more work to do to overcome it. And the third leg of the stool is uh, just random stuff that happens to you, you know, apart from environment and culture, uh, did you meet somebody who was inspiring? Um, did you, you know, sprain your ankle and it took you out for a season, you know, just because there was a pothole, you know, random stuff. And, and that, I found that one of the things that, that I found very interesting, doctor, is you identify aging as kind of like we look at because normally we look at development and we look at childhood development. We look at teen and, and I've, I've heard that, you know, the, the male brain, for example, doesn't st stop developing until our mid 20s. But you kind of identify aging as a later stage of, of adult development. What is, what is it about that that, that caused you to kind of classify that? Thanks for asking, Pete. Well, I, I think that the, the old societal narrative, which is not supported by the current science, is that we, we have brains that grow and get better and better through our teen years, 20s, 30s. And then at some point, 40, 50, 60, it's all downhill. Your brain just declines. It's worn out. It's, uh, you're doddering. Your memory's bad. That might have been true 100 years ago when we didn't have the healthy practices that we do now, the uh, ability to beat a number of uh, debilitating diseases. Now, uh, the brain continues to change and grow at every age. And older age is just another phase. It's just another part of your lifespan. Well, it has its, own unique, has its own unique challenges uh, and its own unique advantages. Well, if you don't mind my asking, I thought I, I really liked how you shared your personal experience with both your grandfather and your father. Can you explain? Can you kind of describe a little bit? Because I thought I thought your father's experience was very uh, was very intriguing and provides a good example of just how to engage. I, I think it provides a great example of successful aging. Yeah, so these things, of course, happen in a familial context often. My grandfather was born in 1901. He lived through the Depression. He smoked most of his life uh, because nobody knew that you shouldn't. In fact, doctors recommended it, and he was a doctor. When he was my age, I'm 63, he was not in good physical shape. His, his mind was not in as sharp. Uh, he was slowing down a lot. Uh, and he got pushed out of his job as a radiologist, which is ironic in that 
radiology is all about experience. It's looking at funny looking blobs on a film and try to figure out whether they're cancer or a fracture or this or that. And the more slides you've looked at, the better you are at the job. Pete, if you need to go get an x-ray and you've got a choice between a 28-year-old <laughs> radiologist and a 60-year-old, I'd take the 68-year-old. Yeah, no, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Um, so he was pushed out of his job and it spun him into a depression and he died shortly after. He didn't mm. feel that he had a purpose or meaning in life. My father, in a completely different profession, uh, was pushed out of his job at around 62 or 63 uh, in, the, in the 70s because they, uh, 80s, because they wanted to make uh, room for younger people. That's all. He was still good at his job. And he went into a depression, of course. He didn't f have the stimulation of, of, of having to report to work and deal with colleagues, some of whom he may have not liked and, uh, having to perform. But six months into it, he sought and obtained a job as a professor at USC. And he's been teaching there ever since. He's 88 now, and he just signed a two-year extension to his contract. And it's invigorated him. It's, it's, yeah, he's one of the students' favorite teachers, and he's 89. And, and I think, but, but I think, Doctor, and you mentioned this, and I've, I've read it other places, how important is the social engagement during the aging process? I know there are different components. I want to ask you about exercise in a couple minutes. But that social interaction, like the fact that your father is back in the classroom and engaging with people much younger than he is, how important is it, are those social in-person interactions to help us achieve successful aging? Well, it's crucial. Uh, the, it, the minimal stress and stimulation that comes from talking to somebody new is actually healthful. It, it requires you to stay on your toes. What you, what you and I are doing right now, we've never met before. Two people having a conversation, we don't know each other, it's the most challenging thing there is for the brain to do. Hmm. We're having to read each other's body language and pauses and find common ground. It's, it's a whole lot of cognitive exercise that's more difficult than putting a rocket on the moon or uh, you know, doing brain surgery. And it's neuroprotective. We, you and I right now are building up new neural pathways as we accommodate hmm. one another, learn from one another. And you know, social interaction is key, especially people you don't know, people from other cultures, other perspectives, because that challenges you. Interesting. So I, I, just to let you in on a little secret, I got into doing the podcast because I wanted the opportunity to really to, to interview smarter people <laughs> and learn from them. I didn't realize that this, this was a, a aging, uh, an aging benefit. Can't, but, but, but we're recording this via a video conference and via video link. And I know right now, and, and hopefully things change soon, but can we get the same benefits? Can you and I have the same benefits connecting video that we would if you're like my across-the-way neighbor? Is in-person, does in-person virtual, do they allow the same benefits of that having that dialogue and that discussion? Is it the in-person or is it just having that discussion? There isn't a lot of data on this, Pete, but it does seem as though in-person is much healthier. Of course, during COVID, we can't do in person uh, at all, depending on your risk group and where you live, and or even minimally, in other cases. 
And so video is better than nothing, but being in person is very important. Um, the three-dimensionality of it, the, um, the body language cues are different. Um, the, just the very fact that somebody could come right out and punch you if you say something bad, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I, I always worry about that. I was the, uh, I was the kid in school who was, uh, who was kind of bookish. And so I was always worried somebody was gonna punch me uh, or flush my head down a toilet or something. And uh, the most interesting thing that came out of doing the research for the book was the notion of micro contacts. These are little meaningless 15 second conversations you have with somebody next to you in line at the grocery store or the post office or you're out walking in your neighborhood and you chat to a neighbor about how's the weather, you know, how you doing today. Those little things have a huge psychological and neurochemical effect on us. They help us to feel connected to the world in a way that not having them in person doesn't do. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've noticed, and, and this was pre-COVID, but I noticed that over the last few years, and for listeners, we're, we're talking via video chat, but I'm going to hold up my phone here. One of the things I've noticed, doctor, is that nowadays, if, if you and I are in line together at a Starbucks, at a coffee store, we are much less likely, we are much more likely to be engaged in a little screen in our hands than we are to make some innocuous comment about the weather. And, and so what you're saying, because I, I don't know about you, but I kind of miss that. I mean, I miss, when I lived in Washington, D.C., I was just telling somebody, about my former neighbor, I had a neighbor in the building next door who'd always be out smoking. And regardless of how I feel about smoking, whatever, but I love the fact that he was there and I'd go out to walk my dog. And sometimes I wouldn't come back in for a while because Poe, it was his name and not Poe and I, would be talking about the football team. We'd be talking about whatever, just having some random conversation. So in your findings, you found that those, that those just kind of interactions, they're very important to, to us as we age. Is that, is, is that what your, your research showed? Yeah, at any age, and uh, especially in old age, and it, it, in terms of feeling high levels of life satisfaction and belongingness and being part of a community, all of things which correlate with uh, uh, you know with overall happiness, uh, th those micro contacts were underappreciated, hmm. and. Um, you know, even during the COVID, we've got a, I'm in Los Angeles, we've got a little um, grocery store across the street, a little market, not a big chain or anything. And I'll go in at eight in the morning when it's mostly empty and I'll buy groceries and I talk to the owner who I know and I talk to uh, the, the staff there. And um, yeah, I'm wearing a mask, of course, they're wearing masks, but it's hard to describe, but it makes me feel a little bit lighter. Hmm. Well, it makes you feel like a part of a community. Like even, yeah, even in the metro, just... Metroplex, like LA, LA is huge, but yeah. here you are, you have like your little interactions. Yeah. And I'm not just stuck in my own head. You know, it would be easy for me to just stay in my computer all the time. I'm going <laughs> out, I'm seeing other people, I'm learning about what they're doing. You know, one of the checkout girls is taking a year off from college and then she's going to go to graduate school. Uh, young women, not girls, sorry. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's another checkout guy who uh, lives in the neighborhood and, you know, he works in the local store. 
the owner used to be in the video business. He used hmm. to sell video equipment. Now, then his father died, left him the store, and he became a, a grocery interesting. man. Oh, interesting. And so let's switch gears now to talk a little bit about exercise, because one of the things you write about quite a bit in the book, and, and your, your background is as a, as a neuroscientist, how important is exercise in the aging process? And is there any particular type of exercise that might be more important than others? Well, so exercise is, of course, important for obvious reasons. It oxygenates the blood. It helps you keep muscle tone, uh, improves your sense of balance. But if you look at Americans who are mostly a sedentary people, the biggest differences we find, probably not so much among your listeners, this is all about fitness, it's not all about couch potatoing, <laughs> but the biggest difference we find is that if people will just get up off the couch and walk around the block twice a day, that has a huge impact on health and a number of different markers of health, more so than whether you add five extra minutes on the elliptical or an extra 20 minutes worth of repetitions in the gym. Those are good too, but uh, the real problem is sedentarism. And Another thing that's un, had been underappreciated, my colleague Scott Grafton, a, a very um, very manly man, exercised focused uh, neuro, neurologist at UC Santa Barbara, he wrote a book on embodied cognition, uh, a wonderful book. And the idea is that your brain learns by navigating and by interacting with the environment. Hmm. I love going to the gym. I like the machines, uh, but he's talking about going hiking, especially on a rough trail. Uh, his book is called Physical Intelligence. And you know, you're walking on a rough trail, you've got to make thousands of micro decisions about what angle to put your foot at and how much weight to put on it. And you know, over the course of, a, of an hour walk, it's a lot of adjustment. You've got to stay out of the way of uh, hazards on the ground and you know, in the air and not get hit by twigs if you're <laughs> in the forest. It's, it's mentally more healthful for the brain than sheer exercise, just walking in the, in the forest. Well, that comes down to the concept of neuroplasticity, right? I mean, you're developing, what you're doing is you're really kind of creating new, new pathways. So, so the idea then is we want to get out of what we normally do and try new novel physical experiences. Is that what the research is showing, that that might be a, a kind of a healthier or more holistic way to approach exercise? Yeah, and, and it's interesting um, from an evolutionary standpoint, too. So the part of your brain that keeps track of you know, phone numbers and song lyrics and birthdays and such, you know, names of your friends... That's the part called the hippocampus. And it originally evolved over tens of thousands of years to help us with geo-navigation. Hmm. It didn't evolve to remember song lyrics and phone numbers, of course. <laughs> so um, the way you exercise it is by navigating. Turn the GPS off if you're driving. Uh, go to new places. That builds up the hippocampus, and then it has crossover effects to normal everyday memory. 
Well, it's funny you say that, Doctor. Number one, I do a lot of mountain biking, partly because of, of the stimulus. And number two, unless I'm somewhere new and I'm trying to get from point A to point B rather quickly, I really don't like using a nav. I prefer to look up the – I do the old-fashioned thing. Even on my phone or my iPad, I look up on the map and I actually write out the directions, point A to point B. And and because to me, that's I like that mental – those kind of mental gymnastics. I know, I know we've, we've read things about Sudoku and, and doing that type of stuff, but how important is it to engage the brain and challenge the brain in new ways at any time, but especially as we start getting a little bit older? So Sudoku, crossword puzzles, learning a language, all those are good, um, but take Sudoku and crossword puzzles as an example. If you've already been doing them a lot and, and you've find them pleasurable, you should keep doing it. You do things that are fun. You, you know, you should make time for fun in your life. If you're continuing to do them, though, just because you think they're going to help your brain, they don't really. Mm. If you've never done them before and there's something new, that will build new pathways. That's good. Learning a language. Um, if you've learned languages before, languages are different than Sudoku and crosswords. Always a good idea to learn a language if you can. Um, Typically, when you're learning, you would find people who speak that language. And so you'd be interacting, you'd be killing two goals with one, one activity. Interesting. No, I like that. Now, to wrap it up here and respect your time, uh, the last thing I have a note to ask about is, is the Harvard study. You refer to the, the long, it's been, the study's been going on for years. And I, th I thought some of the findings of that were pretty fascinating, especially when they track people out throughout the lifespan. So if you wouldn't mind, just for, for just give us a brief like kind of overview of the Harvard study and, and what it kind of shows about achieving successful aging. Yeah, this was one of the few longitudinal studies where you just track a whole bunch of people for 40 or 50 years. And, um, you know, a number of things came out of it, the Harvard men's study, uh, again, it's only men. It's only men that uh, are of a certain age. John F. Kennedy was actually part of the cohort. Oh, that's right, yeah. Uh, and it showed that early life stressors can be very difficult to overcome, not impossible. But uh, And there are new findings coming out about it all the time. But the big picture part of the story is that the things we're talking about, being engaged with others, having meaningful work, following healthy practices uh, make a very big difference in, in overall life outcomes and longevity. And, you know, on the topic of longevity, I think, you know, a lot of people think, well, I want to live as long as possible. Well, sure, that's a good goal, but maybe a better goal is that for whatever length of time you have, uh, to make sure that you can maximize the amount of time you're healthy and engaged with the world. If I could live an extra 20 years, but I spend those last 20 years in a coma or in a catatonic state, that doesn't appeal to me. We have less control over longevity. Uh, I mean, some obvious things, don't smoke, uh, you know, don't you know, try, to, try to keep your weight down, these kinds of, you know, reduce risks. But apart from the obvious things, uh, for longevity, the kinds of things you and I are talking about, um, being conscientious, being curious, um, 
making associations with others, learning new things, those can keep your brain healthier for a longer portion of the time that you're alive. So your lifespan might be, you know, lifespan is the chronology. You, you were born, you die, you have a certain number of days. We can divide that into health span and disease span. Usually in the course of a normal life, you're rolling along more or less healthy with some ups and downs. You get sick at the end, you die from what you got sick of. That last part where you're sick is the disease span. The health span is the rest of it. And the kinds of things you and I are talking about can push that health span out within the lifespan. Well, that's exactly. I'm glad you mentioned that because I forgot that. I thought that was great the way you laid that out in the book. And, and for, for people, for listeners, if you want to understand, and I'm going to hold this up for YouTube, if you want to understand how to extend your health span and minimize the, the disease span of just what Dr. Levitin was talking about, I highly recommend his book, Successful Aging. Do you have any other information, Doc? Do you? I mean, I don't know how often you would post on social media or if you do a blog. I, you know, that's that's the type of stuff I don't know as a neuroscientist you might not have the time for, but if people wanted to kind of find out, because you have other books as well, but if people want to find out more about this and about how to achieve successful aging, what do you have other resources out there? Oh, sure. I, 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 I do engage with social media because I like uh, learning from my readers. They send interesting emails and uh, comments and such and spur new ideas for new books and new research studies. Uh, I'm on Instagram oh, wow. uh, okay. at Daniel Levitin official. I'm on Twitter at Dan Levitin. There's Daniel dot uh, all run together. Daniel And I just started a Patreon page oh, cool. uh, on the um, subscription service where I'm writing stuff all the time. And I've found that, you know, people might be willing to pay $3 a month to see it before it comes out or to see what I'm working on that got cut from a book for whatever reason. And I'm fine, but this book, I'm sure, I'm sure the excerpts of it could really provide a lot of, a lot of health, helpful insights as we age. Well, doc, I really appreciate your time today. I know we only had a bit, short bit of it, but I wanted to introduce, I wanted to introduce my listeners to your work because I think picking up a copy of Successful Aging could greatly help them enhance their overall quality of life. And, and that's my mission here. So thank you for your time. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that was a fun and, and very educational interview for me. If you want to see that interview, if you're not aware, if you want to see that interview, I'm now posting the interviews on the All About Fitness podcast. That's the All About Fitness podcast channel on YouTube. So if you're consuming the podcast via audio platforms, thank you. Keep doing that. But if you want to see the interviews, if you want to see the discussion that I'm having with these experts, then go to the All About Fitness podcast channel on, on YouTube. I'm also putting up exercise how-tos and other information that, that you can use to help learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. Well, I learned something new there. <laughs> really, I mean, I, I learned something new. I, I, I said this in the beginning. I selfishly... And I look at the podcast as kind of being a little selfish, right? Because one of the reasons why I do the podcast is so I can can engage people and reach out to people and have some interesting conversations. And I want to share those conversations with you, the listener, so you can learn how to apply this information. I mean, yes, it's selfish because I learned, but I want to share it with you. 
I have found in my career as an educator, I learn, I learn best by teaching others. That's one way we learn is by teaching others. And that's how I got started down the field or down the path of education, specifically in fitness. So in this conversation, I learned that having these conversations actually can help slow down the aging process. I never really, I never kind of put that together. And that's why I think it was fascinating to hear the input from a neuroscientist. And I will say, this is something that I have, have observed and I've lamented. You know, I haven't, for the most of the last year, I haven't traveled. It, I'm recording this in early February of 2021, and it's been exactly a year since I did my last trip when I went to Dubai. And this has been the longest time, I think, since I was a young kid that I haven't been on an airplane. And I say that because one of the things that, the, that I've noticed, and I, I talked about this briefly with the doctor, but one of the things I've noticed is if we're at the airport waiting for to board our plane, if we're at the coffee shop waiting for our drink, wherever we go... A few years ago, not even, not that long ago, we used to have these innocuous small conversations. Hey, how's it going? How about this team? How about that team? How do, you know, very innocuous conversations. And the one thing I've realized recently is that we're not engaging with one another. You know, what we're doing is, yeah, we, we might, you know, we're not engaging with one another. We're engaging with our screens. Engaging with the screen is nowhere near as beneficial as just having that little, little, in talking with somebody. And I love the fact that the, I love how the doctor shared his story of his grocer, because that's the one thing now where I live. I don't have that. When I lived in downtown DC, when I lived in downtown Boston, there, there was always, we had that corner store. We lived in downtown. So there was always a corner store and you got to know the people at the store. And it was just like, you go in, maybe you get a drink, maybe you, whatever. And you, Hey, how's it going? How are you doing today? Just those little interactions. So think about that Next time you're waiting in the line somewhere, put leave your phone in your pocket. Think about these little interactions as being key, right? I mean, we want to learn. What I'm trying to bring you is information that can help you learn how to use this stuff so we slow down the aging process. And if having that little conversation for 30 seconds with somebody in line is instrumental, I mean, then we got to be, I know I need to do a better job of that, right? I've observed that and I need, and I'm kind of putting myself on notice. I'll report back to you and let, and let you know how I do. Cause I think that's an important component of that. So this is a fun conversation. I only had a brief amount of time with a doctor, but this is the type of content I'm trying to bring to you. The author of successful aging. I mean, my mission is to help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. And a huge component of that is slowing down the aging process. I'll have links down to everything for Dr. Levitin down below in the show notes. Check them out. If you want to learn more about exercise, you have a couple different options. You have smarter workouts. If you go to PeteMcCallFitness.com, sign up for my mailing list. I'll send you a chapter and a workout from Smarter Workouts so you can try it before you buy it. You can pick up one of my eBooks: Functional Core Training, Dynamic Anatomy, Exercise Program Design for the Fountain of Youth. My eBooks teach you about the human body, teach you how the, how the human body reacts and responds to exercise. If you're a fitness professional, you can pick up one of my continuing education courses. I do CEC courses. I have dynamic anatomy, which teaches about muscles and fascia. I have total body core training, which teaches exercise program design based on Stu McGill's work, who's been a frequent guest on the podcast. I have exercise for the fountain of youth, which goes into the science of how exercise slows down aging. And hey, I have Glute Reboot with the Abby Apple, who's one of the most dynamic, creative exercise programmers that I know in the industry. Those are all resources I'm trying to bring to you to help you learn how to use exercise to enhance your quality of life. 
you want to follow me and connect, connect, do it on Instagram, all about fitness podcasts on Instagram. That's all about fitness podcasts on Instagram. Shoot me an email. Let me know how things are going. Let me know how exercise is working for you at Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. My email is Pete at PeteMcCallFitness.com. And as always, thank you for stopping by. And I do look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.